Well, good morning, friends. It's a delight to see all of you this morning. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you've got a paper copy, turn to all the way to the back to Revelation 6. If you've got a digital copy, I guess look for the 6. No, uh, don't know why that was funny. Even <laughs> it kind of was um, humor. Um, if you were here wanting the Book of Revelation to get wild this morning, then you're in luck because it's going to get really wild this morning. Revelation, uh, woo, yay! It's going to get crazy. The Bible. Um, so uh, yeah, let's uh, let's pray and kind of orient our hearts this morning as we begin. Now let's center ourselves on Jesus. Jesus, you're here in this place and we were not aware of it. We thank you that you you inhabit the praises of your people, and you meet us, and you you encourage us as we sing, and we ask right now that you would would get the text off of our screen, off of the paper, and into our hearts, and into our lives, and into our bloodstream, and that good news would course not only through us, but course through this city, Um, that your kingdom would come, and your will would be done in Manitou Springs, in Colorado, as it is in heaven. So grant us ears to hear this morning. Um, We uh, can't do this without you. It would be folly. And so speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so I don't have much time to catch you up. If you haven't been here, we've been in Revelation. It's been a little wild. Revelation 4 is as far back as we'll go. John, the guy who's writing this, he had some sort of vision on an island of Patmos. He gets to peer behind the curtain of all all of reality, go backstage of the universe, and he sees um, worship taking place in heaven. He sees this, this giant throne at the center of the universe, and in the right hand of the one on the throne, he spies a scroll. Nobody told me that the fifth seal had popped off during my sermon last week. Somebody should have told, told me that. Um, I had to put hot glue on these things, make sure they're not coming off. But it's ironic today, though, because they actually are going to come off in the sermon today. Um, But we mentioned last week as we talked about it, if you need to catch up, we've got podcasts, whatever. But um, we mentioned last week the scroll, if it doesn't come to your mind with the book of Revelation, it should. Um, It's a really important um, prop. Not just a prop, it actually becomes a set piece, like a giant, like blockbuster set piece today. Um, This scroll seems to be, we said last week, it seems to be God's plan for how he's going to save the world is what seems to be contained within this. How he's going to right the wrongs, how he's going to bring justice to the world, judge evil, heal wounds. How is God going to save the world? Well, it's in this scroll. But the problem is it's, um, it's sealed up. It's perfectly sealed. There's no way to open up the the scroll and read what's inside, Um, most of us have had moments of like wanting to read this scroll, haven't we? Of being like, God, where are you? What are you going to do? How are you going to do it? I don't know. Things are a mess. (laughs) 
what, what are you going to do, God, and how are you going to save? This is the scroll with the answers, and the problem that we saw last week is it's a locked safe. It's locked safe. Nobody can get inside of it. No one knows the combination, the precise way to get in. And so John, we remember last week in verse 4 of chapter 5, he starts weeping and weeping. Right there in the middle of heaven, he's like having a, a nervous breakdown on, on behalf of all of us is really what we said last week. Um, the world needs rescue. <laughs> he's actually confronting the, the problem with, a, with more clarity than a lot of us do a lot of times. Um, the world needs saving, and nobody can sort out how God's going to do it. But then John is told in verse 5 of chapter 5, he said, Do not despair. Do not weep. There is someone who can open the scroll and let us know what is inside. The lamb can do it, he said. The one who is slaughtered and standing, Jesus of Nazareth, is who we call him in history. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen. Jesus can make sense of the world. Jesus, I have good news for you today. Jesus can make sense of your life. Jesus can make sense of your life. Jesus is going to tell us how God is going to save the world. That's the plot of the book of Revelation. Um, and that's where we are today. The lamb on the throne begins opening the scroll. Jesus is going to make sense of the world. God is going to do something. Let's read in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Hope you're there. It's going to get wild. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures around the throne is where that is. Uh, say in a loud voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, we're making progress. Um, I heard the living creatures say, come. And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. And th then I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat. I don't know why it sounded British, and I don't know, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Monty Python or something. Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. But do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come, and I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over one-fourth fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And all God's people said, thanks be to God. 
<laughs> Let's pause right here. Um, I told you guys it's going to get wild, right? I told you. Um, could there be eight wilder verses in all of the Bible? I think not. Just all clustered together right here. These have got to rank, don't they? This is the, they're famous. They're called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've heard of this. It's made our, its way into like our vernacular, pop culture, whatever. It's an arresting image, isn't it? These four colored horses. We keep have, having to keep remind ourselves week after week, and I will do it right now, that Revelation is full of pictures and symbolism is what it is. These are not literal horses the, or, or literal riders on them. I didn't know that death could ride a horse, you know? I didn't know that the mythological underworld of the, Greeks, of the Greek culture, Hades, could ride on a horse following after. Scholars both liberal and conservative, mostly agree on the general shape of what's happening right here, on what these four horsemen symbolize, what they represent. We could say it this way. Breaking off of the, off the scroll, the, the seals on the scroll, is confronting history's evils, is what we've got right here. Um, they represent the evils of history. Remember, this scroll is, if we could see inside, we could see God's plan to save the world. How God's going to do it. That's why we're trying to get into the scroll. Let's keep that in mind. Um, But before you can see God's plan to save the world, you've got to confront all of the things that are Stopping God's plans to say, there's a logic to the symbolism here. These are the things blocking God's plans. That's the seals. That's what we're seeing as we're popping them off. The seals are what's stopping the scroll from being read. Okay? So you got to face them. You got you to confront. The, and this isn't just true for the world. This is actually true in all of our lives. We, we could actually say it this way if we wanted to. Um, entering salvation always involves confronting our sickness. Always. <laughs> That's what's got to take place before you can be res- before you can be saved, before you can enter into health. Is you've got to confront, you got to get, got to get the diagnosis right before you can have the medicine. The the lamb is actually I joked about it, but he's making progress right here as each of these seals comes off. We're actually getting closer to being able to see the scroll, but it doesn't seem like progress at first, right? Does it? No, at first, it's as the seals are breaking off, it doesn't feel like we're approaching salvation. It actually feels like the world's falling apart, right? That, um, C.S. Lewis actually put it this way. It's good for the personal, for us as individuals, and it's also good for uh, the world right here. Um, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is still left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. What we're, what we're being confronted with right here on a worldwide scale is we're having to look at the badness of the world, um, and it's challenging us. If we ever want to enter into wholeness, we've got to confront our—it's true for individuals. It's true for families. If, if there's something in the family, you've got to confront it before you can be whole as a family. It's true for faith communities, for cities, for, for even our, like our country, it's, and it's true here in the book of Revelation. We've got to face the seals. 
You got to face the evils head on. And so the lamb begins like breaking off the seals of the scroll. And we're getting closer to God's plans, but all hell is starting to break loose as we're doing it. We're suddenly seeing, I'll say it one more time, we're suddenly seeing what is blocking God's purposes. And so these horsemen, they're like big problems in the world. Let's just look at them really briefly. Seal one is a white horse, and it seems to represent, uh, verse, uh, verse one, two, uh, it seems to represent human di- desire uh, for domination, to conquer. It's a white horse, got a bow. Seems to maybe represent the Parthians on the east side of the Euphrates, perhaps. But it's just anybody who's threatening and wanting to conquer. Here we see like our desire to one-up each other uh, on the personal level, all the way up to like Alexander the Great conquering the known world or Hitler invading Poland. It's human desire to dominate one another is a problem in the world. And how do people wind up, how do they end up acting eventually when they want to dominate one another? Why, of course, they evoke the red horse. <laughs> they evoke the, um, the second horse, the, the red horse of human violence. He hands out a sword and lets people kill each other. It is it's the color of blood. It's the color of, of fire. It's the, it's the hatred of war is what happens when human beings want to dominate each other. It's the next domino that falls. And I, I, don't, I don't think there's much commentary to give on. It's a problem for the world. It's a problem. And then typically in human history, after you get people dominating uh, one another, usually whoever is in power is in power and comfy and not really that concerned with the scales of justice with the, the rider of the third horse bringing out the scales of ju- making sure that everybody gets their needs met is uh, something we could and so the the third the third horse the third seal is this black horse that seems to rep- represent economic injustice is what's happening here. You've got a lot of people who have got a lot of wealth and a lot of people who don't have a lot of wealth. And the the black horse, verse 5, comes out and the prices of food, wheat and barley, in that Monty Python voice, um, in verse 6, right here, they're declared to be about 12 times the normal cost. Is actually, it's saying, basically, go to the grocery store and milk is going to cost $25 a gallon. And bread is going to cost $36 a loaf. That's actually the way the math factors once, we, once you convert it from there. Anyway, the math's right there. Um, the greed of the powerful says, who cares? I don't care about the cost of bread or the cost of milk. The, make sure that the oil and the wine and the new iPhone, make sure, don't touch that. That's what, the, that's what it's saying. Make sure you don't touch the oil or the wine, the luxury items that we got. I don't care about rampant inflation or the food shortages or the fact that lots of people are filing for unemployment. Not really that worried about that. And eventually these three cascade down until we get the, the fourth seal being opened, the fourth horse, which is a, like a pale greenish kind of horse, um, depending on how you translate the word um, sickness, thanatos, thanatos, death, 
or sickness, and Hades, the, 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 the realm of the underworld, is actually following closely afterward. Uh, death is personified right here. It's, it's symbolic. Death is riding on a horse. I wonder what that looks like. <laughs> I guess like the Grim Reaper or something. Um, but, and then Hades, the land of the dead, is following after him. And so this is the lamb has opened four of the scrolls, and um, we're approaching, we're getting closer to being able to read God's purposes in the world, but before we can do it, we have to stare conquering and war and complicated economics and pestilent death. We have to stare these things in the face. And then um, keep going, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. And so now we're starting to see the cascade effect of the first four um, because now in the fifth seal coming off, you're starting to see the human impact of all of these. You're starting to see dead Christians. (laughs) um, Seal five, we could say true humanity embodied in the people of God. True humanity is being crushed it's confused, like in heaven. They're asking questions. They're, they're raising their concerns. They're like, what's going on? How long? This is actually another um, a sign, a signal to us that um, John's vision is not taking place in heaven in the future somewhere. Um, we mentioned before, he, he's just going backstage of like the present because all of these people are this isn't a place where tears have been wiped away yet. They're all kind of wondering, like, what's, what's going on? When are you going to like do something, God? Um, Christians, they've been killed, verse 9, by um, tyrants, local persecution, but they're not at peace fully yet. They're asking these questions, saying, what is going on? Interestingly, they're um, pictured, did you notice where they're pictured? Under the altar. That's so interesting. The people of God, they seem to be like some sort of like, do you know where the blood of a sacrifice would drain? It would, of course, drain below the altar. That's what the, these people are pictured as. They have sacrificed their lives on behalf of God, and they are waiting for vindication. Let's keep going. Verse 12 says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, whatever that means. Um, And the whole whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the king of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? So the sixth seal comes off, and it sounds, like we're, it sounds like we're approaching the end of the world, doesn't it? 
right? If we're to the, verses 12 through 14 says that the language talks about like a great earthquake and like the sun turning, I presumably black, like go here. Um, and the, the, the moon turns red. The, the stars are like falling like fruit from trees. And the, and the sky is being rolled up. Mountains and islands are vanishing. But the language, this language, again, is like the horses, This is metaphor. This is symbol is what's taking. Think about it. Think about it for a second. Um, These people are calling out to mountains and wanting to hide in mountains and under rocks, but in verse 15, but the mountains were just removed in verse 14. Okay, on a strictly literal level, if you try, even if even even when you're just trying to read verses in sequence, the, it doesn't work if you're taking it. It doesn't make much literal sense. Um, the language is picture, it's symbol. It's actually the language that the prophets use um, throughout Scripture and like the what we call the Old Testament. Um, it sounds like it's like end of the world kind of language, but this is how the prophets talked about God about. To do something is the way that they, they would talk about the great day of the Lord is coming. When Ezekiel or Joel or Isaiah talked about the day of the Lord is coming, they didn't mean that the space-time universe was about to end. Go read like Isaiah 13. Make a, make a note right there. So somewhere, Isaiah 13, verse 9 and onward. He is proclaiming in this exact kind of language. He's using it, but he's talking about Babylon. The, the great mighty empire of Babylon is about to fall. It's about to collapse, and it's going to be like the end of the world. It's going to be a 9-11 kind of event. It's going to shake the world. You're not going to recognize the world on the other side. That's the way the language works. That's the, the prophets would all, often use earth shatter. You can even hear it the way I'm earth shattering kind of language, world falling apart kind of language to talk about when God is about to show up and do something. We need to unpack this sixth seal for a second. Don't worry, I'm right, we're right on time. Um, the sixth seal is God's about to do something. God's about, that's the, what the language is when you read the, the prophets. That seems to be in play here because it's the sixth seal. God, something's about to happen, right? God's about to do something. He's about to open the scroll, right? Um, and so this is the symbolic language of God's about to do something, um, but it can also actually get used in a, in a different way. When, um, when Jeremiah uses this kind of language, Jeremiah 4, if you want to look it up. Uh, Jeremiah 4, uh, it's like verse 27 or something, um, and onward, he uses this kind of language to talk about how evil all of what's been happening in the rest of the seals, how evil actually causes creation to like unravel, to like come apart at the seams, like to decay, to disintegrate is what evil does to God's good creation. It's like a reverse, it's like anti-creation kind of language. Like the, the, the God who puts sun, moon, stars in place, it's all like falling apart is the way Jeremiah uses this language. Have you ever, we've all experienced this, life starts coming apart at the seams because of some stupid darkness that we do, right? 
We, we live long enough and you've done something and it's like, I have caused the world, to the sun to be blackened, the moon, to, like everything to start. And then I start blaming God about it. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, I'm like, well, you know, you know, this is God's fault. This isn't my fault. Yeah, I know I ate that fruit, but it was, it was that woman you gave me, God. <laughs> you know, it was her. It was you, God. <laughs> that's the human condition is what we end up doing. And that's what we actually see happening here, don't we? We see in this passage, verses 16 and 17, people are blaming God for this cascade of evil taking place. It's that one on the throne. He's the one who's angry. He's the, it's the lamb. He wants us all dead. It's the wrath of the lamb. Dude, are these people credible? Like, should we be taking, building theology on what they're saying? I think not. These guys are, this is the wrath of the lamb. That lamb who died to save the whole world because he loves us so much. It's him that's about to destroy me. Do they have a clear conception? of the lamb that we saw in Revelation 5. No, no, who the lamb? They are afraid of the lamb. They're afraid of love. <laughs> yes, I'm not saying God doesn't judge. Yes, God judges evil, but God judging evil is always, he, he says no to certain things in the world so that he can say yes to the world being put back together. Um, this actually explicitly gets named, it's, uh, it's going to be up here on the screen, but it's Revelation 11. Um, build your theology right here. Um, the, the saints, instead of the twisted people, are singing and they say, your wrath has come. The time has come for you judging the dead, rewarding your servants, the prophets, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. That's interesting. That is what motivates God's, what we call God's wrath, which is really just God's love, like when, when we're on the wrong end of it. It's, it's when we, when, no, I'm, and I'm being for real, when we side with death, the love of God that needs to cast out death ends up looking like wrath to us until we're on back on the other side of it. God is the God of life, period, and he's going to destroy what destroys life. That's, that's what's all, God says no to sin. Yes, God judges. He says no to sin. He says no to unraveling. He says no to death. But it's always so that he can bring wholeness and restoration and life. That is the picture of how this language gets, whoa, gets used in the prophets. That's the, that's the way this language gets used. We could say it this way to complete, keep working on sick seal. God is about to, yes, he's about to judge and restore is what he's about to do. He's going to open the scroll. But we need to notice what this scroll seems to be saying is so hard. It's what's blocking God's purposes. Um, the seal seems to be saying something about people's response to God. It says that kings and princes and the rich and the mighty and everyone else, slave and free, 
that's pretty comprehensive <laughs> on a group of people. Um, they are afraid of a good and loving God bringing good and loving judgment to a world that he's going to make good and loving. That's what they're afraid of. In verse 16, it actually says that they're lifting a line from Hosea 10. Um, they're saying, let the mountains cover us. They are terrified that the lamb may actually succeed in opening the scroll, is what they're scared of. They don't want God to act. Is what I, I, They would rather live in the death world of the horses than see what kind of new life will be brought by the lamb. Here's the, here's the lie that I think they live in. They say, God wants to unroll something new, but the death that I know is better than the life that I don't. That's, I'm, I'm so glad that we're never like this, <laughs> right? <laughs> we would often rather hide from the lamb than let him rescue us and do the hard, painful work in our lives that needs to be done. If we were to complete the image of what the sixth seal is, I think we could say the sixth seal is resisting God about to judge and restore I think is what's going on here. Of all the seals on here, it seems like the human heart, the hardness of the human heart might be the toughest one to break through. I think is what the sixth, or something like that. Of all the, of all the seals, of all the evils in the world, of everything blocking God's purposes, it's my heart. The hard heart of Brett Davis. <laughs> that might be the deepest problem. We know that things are horse, that are, that things are a problem, that, that horses are running rampant. We, we, I'll weep. I'll, I'll shed tears over needing that God's purposes. I can't figure them out, that they seem to be sealed up, that I'll, I'll shed tears about famine and war and everything else out there. I'll say, oh God, you need to do something about that. But when I realize that God's on the verge of opening the scroll and he's going to restore life and he, he's going to actually have to destroy all death, including, including death within me. Oh gosh, well, I have this little scrap of death that I, I just don't want. It's my favorite scrap of death, and I just, I don't want to let go of it. I don't, it's, it's that habit. It's that pattern. It's that re relationship and the way it works. It's the, that career choice that, like, you know you took a, and you know that you're caught, and it's that need for control that you cannot let go of. It, it, it's your impossible busyness. You know, it's, it's, I will not let God speak into my sexuality. That will not be what I, whatever it is, you know that it's killing you and you don't want to give it up. The death that I know is better than the life that I don't. And the invitation that God is always making is he wants to finally kill that thing that's killing you. It's hard. It's hard. You want to hide under the mountains, don't you? <laughs> like these people from all walks of life are retreating into like the cave of selfishness. 
<laughs> and they're shouting, the judgment of God. Oh gosh, who can withstand this? And the book of Revelation immediately, we're breezing quick through this, but it immediately gives us an answer. As chapter 7 begins, it does it in really highly symbolic language, but it's definitely an answer. People say, who can stand, is actually literally what it says. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Who can withstand any of this? And then it says, verse se- uh, chapter 7, verse 1, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land. That was nice. Or uh, the sea or any a tree. And it's, it's like you've got heavenly beings, you know. They're getting ready for the seventh seal. We're ready for it. Um, verse 2, Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He's got like a signet ring is what's being, it's a seal of God that he uses to, um, and he's calling out into a loud voice to the other four angels who have been given power um, to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until, the Lorax would be proud, until we put a seal, sorry, reading Dr. Seuss right now, um, to put a seal. We need to put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And so now something clever is happening literarily right here. These, these globs of wax that are blocking the purposes of God, um, they, they could be used to seal up a scroll, but they could also be used to like identify something that belongs to you in the ancient world. You put wax and you put your signet ring. It's a way of claiming ownership in the ancient world. And so one angel in verses two and three says to the other angel, we need to go and mark out those, we need to put a stamp on those who can stand, those who are going to make it through this. We need to seal up those who are going to to make it. And verse four says, and then I heard the number of those being sealed. He heard it. 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. And if you couldn't tell, if I need to say it right now, and I will, 144,000 is a loaded, super symbolic number. It is like 12 times 12 times 1,000. It's 12,000 is what unfolds here, 12 times. It's like the people of God on crack is, what, is what's going on right here. And then versus, he hears it is what it, did you notice that? It's not by mistake. He hears it. Um, verses five through eight is like a, one of those ancient, it's like an ancient military roll call. It's like 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 from the tribe of Judah, 12,000. It, it actually numbers one and two is actually where you, if you want to make a note of it, that's what it's hearkening back to. It's, it's um, a cry <laughs> that is completely opposite of what we heard just a second ago. From hard-hearted humanity, we heard who can stand love remaking the world? I've got the scrap of death that I don't want to let go of. And then it's like chapter 7 answers and says, there's this entire army of people who are going to withstand it. Verse 9, after the roll call, says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. He looked. At first he'd heard, Now I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're they're standing. It's the same verb. Who can stand? These guys can. They're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing 
the color of victory, white robes, and were holding palm branches, the sign of peace, in their hands. And they cried in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Not wrath belongs to salvation. He's the rescuer. He's the saver. And to the lamb and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and around the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders asked me, do you know, (laughs) I'm just kidding, the these in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? (laughs) I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the land. That's how they got the color of victory is by immersing themselves in what looks like death. Um, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again. It's just like this cluster of quotations and citations from the prophets. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. And if you needed any convincing that 144,000 is a loaded symbolic number, that was the clincher that we just read. You remember last week, John heard about a lion. He heard, oh, there's a lion coming. And then he turned, and what did he actually see? He saw a lamb. Well, the same thing's happening here. Um, The group being saved is bigger than he thought. It's bigger than he thought because John hears about 144,000 being sealed, but when he actually looks, when he actually sees, it's more people than he can possibly count. It's like this massive, uncountable sea of people before him, an army of people who are saying, I cannot wait to see a world remade by love. They're not afraid of the lamb. They are actually singing the lamb's praises. Where where does the lamb want to take this world? We heard it right there with that cluster of prophetic. He wants no hunger, no thirst, no tears, no no death. The, The horse's world is gone. And the Lamb's world is coming. And, says, and it's like Revelation is saying, don't you want to be a part of this, people? Don't you want to be a part of this? The kind of people who can hope and who can sing and are truly forever alive. If you do notice what it says right here, notice that the all of the people who are singing have come out of Tes thelepsos, tes megalos, the great suffering, the great tribulation. They've all been, that's, it just means great suffering. It's all it means. It's, it's, every one of them have been through tribulation or suffering or hardship in one shape, form, or another. If anyone ever told you that the life of faith, the 
path of following Jesus was a way of escaping from suffering. I'm sorry. <laughs> you were misinformed. You were... The way of Jesus isn't about avoiding suffering. It's about choosing the right way to suffer is what following Jesus is like. It's, it's about being embraced by a God who has suffered with us and for us and trusting that he takes our suffering and through it, he's making all things new. These people, the people who are singing, who are full of hope, who are alive, they're not people who have avoided suffering. They are people who, verse 14, they have immersed themselves in blood. They have immersed, they've washed themselves. They've sunk down into the life of the Lamb. They haven't tried to, like, avoid suffering or pain or death or mountains, cover me. I don't want to suffer. No, they have chosen the right kind of death. They've said, death of my ego, it's got to go. The the death of my need to be right, especially in that relationship, it's got to go. The the death of of, of selfishness. Yes, I'll let it go. The death of avoidance, of avoiding that. Uh, yes, I'll die to it. They have all embraced the death of Jesus. We could say it this way as the band can start making its way up. Entering into true life involves choosing the right kind of death. If you're wondering what it looks like to be alive and you're feeling like, man, I really don't feel like I'm joyful or, or alive or singing or hopeful, it could be that there's a death that needs to happen. The right kind of death needs to take place in your life, and you're just avoiding it. That's how we become like full of song, that when we choose to die on the cross of love rather than dying in the cave of selfishness. So I guess the question we're asked as we're coming to the table this morning is, are we willing to die to um, ourselves? Are we willing to let go of that last, our favorite scrap of death that we're just holding on to? Um, Will I die to my desire, to the white horse, to my desire to dominate other people? Will I choose instead to immerse myself in the life of the lamb to maybe serve them, maybe pray for them, maybe know them, maybe, maybe love them? Will I keep trusting God? Trusting that love is on the verge of doing something great and working powerfully in my life, even when it feels like the world is falling apart. Because it is possible that when our life feels like it's falling apart, that may just be where God is doing his deepest work. And so Jesus, we ask this morning as we're coming to your table that you would orient us to who you are, that you are the lamb on the throne who plans on speaking no only to those things that are killing us. May we receive your no with gratitude, knowing that you are going to destroy what's destroying us. And may you make us alive like you, full of song, hope, life eternal, as we immerse 
ourselves in your blood, in your life, and become an army of martyrs, an army of lovers, giving ourselves for the life of the world. Grant it, we ask, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.